Greetings, and thank you for tuning into this podcast episode focused on Alzheimer's disease, entitled, Why is Early Detection of Alzheimer's Disease So Important? Our learning objectives for this podcast are, one, discuss strategies to promote the early detection of mild cognitive impairment, MCI, or dementia in appropriate patients. Two, review the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Daniel Pretz, Chief of the Division of Cognitive Neurology and Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Welcome, Dr. Pretz. You want to kick off with your disclosures? Yes, thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to this. So I do a number of research studies that are funded by the NIH, but I'm also the site PI for some pharma-sponsored trials, including trials uh, funded by Biogen and Janssen. Excellent. All right, let's get started with the first question, and that is, who should be screened for cognitive impairment, and how often should screening be performed? That's an excellent question, and it's a little bit controversial because both the USPSTF, the group that is in charge of routine screening for all medical conditions, and the AAN don't have any specific recommendations, but Medicare recommends that memory be assessed at least yearly as part of the wellness visit. That, that occurs. And so most people would say that at least once a year, patients should at least be roughly asked in terms of whether they notice any memory problems. And obviously, more significant testing and screening should occur if someone identifies it as a problem. The risk of having memory loss increases pretty dramatically with age. The risk of Alzheimer's doubles for about every five years after the age of 65. So clearly, these questions become more and more relevant as our patients get older. Ah, are there any signs or symptoms that we can reassure patients can be considered part of, quote, normal aging? Yes, there's certain kinds of memory problems that are pretty much universal as we get older. So one of the most common ones is uh, having trouble remembering proper names, names of, of, of people, friends, and acquaintances. That gets harder for a lot of complicated reasons and is pretty normal with normal aging. Also, people frequently complain of forgetting why they went into a room, and these sort of attentional lapse kind of memory problems are less concerning and frequent as we get older. There are, however, um, more significant worrisome signs of memory loss as well. Great detail there. Uh, next question for you. What tools should be used as part of screening? Sure. So if someone's having more worrisome kinds of memory loss, so for instance, forgetting conversations or events, especially conversations or events that are salient or important to them, that's when uh, more significant screening should certainly happen, as well as screening, as we talked about, potentially on a yearly basis in older people who are getting their Medicare visit. There's a number of tools out there, but really I think one that I would advocate for as being uh, quick and easy and accurate is a test called the AD8. It's uh, eight questions that are answered uh, by the caregiver of the patient, and they, they ask questions about whether they are having troubles managing their finances, whether they're having more trouble remembering the exact day or month more often. Are they having more troubles recalling conversations and events than they used to? And that questionnaire can be done in about a minute or so. It can be done in the waiting room by the caregiver, and it shows really quite good sensitivity and specificity. It's a much better test, for instance, than the MINICOG, which is another routinely done sort of one or two minute test that doesn't have as good uh, sensitivity and specificity. Okay, so could you give us some examples of the differences between a rapid screening test and a more detailed assessment? 
Sure. So rapid screening tests are typically things that are done in patients who really have not identified any significant memory problems. And there, something like the AD8, or uh, people often use the MINICOG, those can be done as routine screening because they only take about a minute or two. When someone's identified a memory problem or, or the clinician has a more specific concern, then a more detailed test should be done. And two examples of this would be the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or the MOCA, which takes about 10 to 12 minutes to do, or the mini mental status examination, which is a little bit quicker, about 8 to 10 minutes, but not quite as sensitive or specific. Gotcha, the ADA. So how do you diagnose Alzheimer's disease? So the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease really requires uh, clinical information about the time course and the nature of the problems the patients developed. It generally requires some degree of cognitive testing to uh, ensure you have detected a cognitive problem that is more significant than normal aging. Typically, brain imaging is also part of the diagnosis. And we also do some routine blood tests to rule out reversible causes, although their yield tends to be pretty low. Uh, the clinical information, for instance, that would lead to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is insidious onset and gradual progression, particularly of short-term memory troubles, and often troubles in other areas such as uh, word finding and spatial memory, being able to find your way around in a new environment. The cognitive testing that we typically do is often uh, something like the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is sort of a 10-minute battery that looks at memory, attention, executive function, language, and visual-spatial skills. Um, if, if we're short on time, there is a more brief test, the mini mental status test, but the MOCA is generally thought to be more sensitive and specific. And the blood tests that we routinely do uh, include uh, vitamin B12 and thyroid function, um, as well as sort of routine uh, metabolic uh, panels. In terms of the brain imaging, uh, far and away the best test is an MRI that can really help both to look for signs of Alzheimer's disease in terms of atrophy or shrinkage, particularly in areas that are early affected in Alzheimer's disease, like the hippocampus. And it can also be used to look for vascular changes, changes related to hypertension, diabetes, and others that often can co-occur with Alzheimer's disease. Finally, it can also rule out uh, a number of rarer causes of memory loss, such as strokes or even, in the rare case, tumors. Um, finally, while Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, there are a number of other causes of dementia that the primary care doctor should be aware of. The second most common cause is actually Lewy body dementia, and the hallmarks of that disease that differ from Alzheimer's disease are visual hallucinations, often some motor symptoms such as slowness or stiffness of movement that can look a little bit like Parkinson's disease, and marked fluctuations. People with Lewy body disease have times where they're quite a bit sharper and other times where they, where they are really quite a bit more confused. There are some other symptoms that uh, patients with Lewy body disease have, such as REM sleep behavior disorder, this fascinating syndrome where people act out their dreams or kick out or hit out in sleep. People with uh, Lewy body disease often have falls, and they can have autonomic problems, lightheadedness when they stand. Those are all sort of suggestive signs. After Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body disease, the next most common cause of, of memory loss or dementia is vascular disease. This is a little bit of a complicated area, though, because vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease very frequently co-occur. And when they do, they work synergistically. By that, I mean 
if someone has both a small amount of Alzheimer's changes in their brain and vascular changes, that will lead to a much bigger cognitive impairment. Um, vascular disease, though, can also cause uh, cognitive problems on its own when it's severe or in the cases where someone's had a stroke. After that, the next most common causes of dementia are typically the frontotemporal uh, diseases or frontotemporal dementia. And these uh, tend to occur in younger people, often in their 50s and 60s. The frontotemporal dementias include a behavioral variant where, where behavior is affected very early and language uh, predominant forms where people have what's called primary progressive aphasia. In these conditions, they particularly have trouble with uh, different aspects of language. One hallmark of the frontotemporal dementias is that they lead to specific atrophy in specific lobes. So there the MRI can be really helpful to point out that the atrophy is really focal or in a specific area of the brain. Okay, Dr. Press, can primary care clinicians diagnose Alzheimer's disease or do they need a specialist? I think that if the primary care doctor or, or primary care team is able to do all the above in terms of addressing the, the uh, clinical manifestations, uh, assessing the imaging, the cognitive profile, and ruling out um, other reversible causes, then they can do this. But they should be aware that in diagnosing someone, you also need to have access to the necessary resources that the patient and the family will almost certainly need. And there are a number of places where one can go, including the National Institute on Aging um, has a number of resources on their website, both about the assessment and resources available for people who are diagnosed with it. And also there are a number of algorithms and guidelines that are available as well that can help them. Finally, I would say the Alzheimer's Association is a wonderful resource, not just for Alzheimer's disease, but for other neurodegenerative disorders, both for the clinician and for the patient and family. Great, great. So are there any red flags for dementia that warrant more urgent referral or imaging and testing? Yes, absolutely. So some of the signs that would be particularly worrisome is uh, rapid onset, obviously. So rapid onset dementia that's come on over uh, days or weeks is, is, is always of concern for either uh, prion disease like CJD or an encephalitis. I think some other red flags would be any signs of the Lewy body dementia that we talked about, such as visual hallucinations or fluctuations. Those patients in particular require specific management issues to manage both their cognitive and their motor and other symptoms. And, and they often really should be referred to a neurologist. If there's impairment in attention, so if someone's more confused, uh, that's always worrisome for a delirium that can sometimes be mistaken for dementia. In dementia, attention should really be relatively well-preserved, at least for the first number of years. And then if there's any focal signs, obviously if anyone has a weakness on one side of the body or the other, if they have an isolated language problem or isolated visual spatial problem, particularly if the onset was, was uh, fairly sudden, that's always worrisome either for a tumor or a stroke or some other focal process. Typically, Alzheimer's and most of the other neurodegenerative disorders are more gradually occurring and uh, affect a number of different cognitive areas. Great. So what are the stages of Alzheimer's disease? Yes, there certainly are different stages, and, uh, and there's a number of different uh, ways of breaking them down. But I think the easiest way is to start uh, from the most mild or pre-symptomatic. So, 
So there is a pre-symptomatic stage of Alzheimer's disease where a patient really has no cognitive symptoms at all, but if we do special scans, such as amyloid PET scans, we can see signs that amyloid is starting to build up in the brain, and this can occur even 5, 10, or even 15 years before someone starts to develop significant cognitive symptoms. There's a number of research studies going on to see if we can intervene in that pre-symptomatic stage when someone has amyloid building up in their brain but has not yet developed any, any really cognitive symptoms. The next stage in terms of progression is something called mild cognitive impairment. What mild cognitive impairment means is someone has enough memory problems that they're more than can be explained by normal aging, but they're still able to do all of their day-to-day -day functions. They can still drive, they can still typically do most of their finances and cooking, but they do have more memory problems than they should, and that can be picked up on testing. Next after that is mild, moderate, and severe dementia, and we typically um, define those by the degree of cognitive deficits, and often things like the MOCA or the mini mental status uh, test can uh, sort of dictate when someone's moved from a mild stage to a moderate stage of Alzheimer's disease or dementia, and similarly from a moderate to severe. And finally, there's end stage where really people have uh, profound deficits and are starting to lose some basic functions such as ambulating and speaking. Gotcha. Dr. Press, does MCI always progress to Alzheimer's disease? Uh, if so, how quickly does it progress? That's a really good question, and it's a, it leads to a very interesting answer, which is mild cognitive impairment does not always progress to dementia. In fact, um, about 20 or 25 percent of the time, people who have mild cognitive impairment, when we retest them uh, three or four years down the road, they're actually better. They've actually ha had an improvement in their cognitive function. That's particularly the case if we can find reversible causes medications that could be impairing cognition, excessive alcohol use, depression, sleep disorders. About another 25% of people with mild cognitive impairment, when we test them two or three years later, will still be at the exact same level. Their, their cognitive uh, deficits will not have worsened, but they will not have improved either. And unfortunately, about 50% of people will progress from MCI to mild dementia over two to three years. Uh, we can uh, do a little bit to risk stratify that to sort of uh, say who's at more risk of progressing to dementia. And there are um, uh, uh, certain kinds of scans, such as the amyloid PET scan that we briefly mentioned, which can help to uh, risk stratify people for how likely their MCI is to progress. Excellent. Well, I think we got time for one more question. Thanks for all the information so far. But last one, why is it important to diagnose Alzheimer's disease as early as possible? Um, so there's a number of reasons that I think we want to get to diagnosing people earlier and earlier. And one of them is because we, we think we can intervene in terms of the rate of progression of the disease. So there are a number of lifestyle interventions which, for which there's pretty good evidence that it can slow the progression of the disease. Some of these are, are things such as exercise, um, eating a healthy diet, a Mediterranean diet, addressing vascular risk factors, staying active cognitively, and staying active socially. And so lifestyle interventions can help to slow the progression of the disease. It also allows people to, uh, to consider entering clinical trials. So we're testing a number of interventions which we think will be disease modifying or slow the progression of the disease, but people need to be aware that they're at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease potentially to enter into these trials. 
And there are resources such as TrialMatch, uh, which is a service put out by the Alzheimer's Association that can help match someone who has MCI with a clinical trial to see if that clinical trial can potentially slow the progression of their disease. Finally, lots of people uh, want to know whether, whether they're at risk for developing you know, much more significant cognitive deficits. It can change a lot of their planning and their strategies. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this podcast. Dr. Press, thanks for taking your time to teach us about how we can improve our detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primemed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primemed.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Take care.